Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you, and it's good to have those of you watching us online. Thank you for sharing the services with your family and friends. As we say, we believe that's one of the greatest reasons our church is reaching so many people is through your exponential uh, outreach for family and friends as you share the services. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for being here this morning. We're continuing on in our series, Better, Better. And when you look at the book of Hebrews, that is the theme of the book of Hebrews. God has promised better things. We have, as the book uh, talks about, a better advocate. An advocate is an attorney. It's someone who represents us. And the Bible says we have a better advocate. Jesus is our attorney, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He represents us to his Father. He is our advocate. He is also our mediator. He's the one who goes between. He represents us to God. He represents God to us. He's the pontifex. He's the great high priest. He's the bridge builder. He's the problem solver. He's the burden lifter. He's the sin forgiver. And when you just study Jesus and you get into his word, you find he's better. He's better than anyone you'll ever know. He's better than anything you will ever experience. And as we say around here, if you don't know Jesus, we highly recommend him. And so this morning, I wanna take another step in that direction as we talk about another better thing that the book of Hebrews talks about, and it is a better sacrifice, a better sacrifice. Now, throughout all of the Old Testament, everyone was familiar with the sacrificial system. That sacrificial system was a, a symbol, it was a type, uh, it was an image, it was a shadow, it was foretelling of the coming of Jesus the Messiah who one day would be the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. So throughout the Old Testament, you have a sacrificial system. And the way it worked, as most of you know, is an individual would bring the very best of their flocks or herds because the Bible says that sacrifice would represent Jesus who one day would come. So it had to be a, an animal without any spot, without any blemish, couldn't be roadkill, you had to bring the best. And you would bring that animal to the tabernacle, you'd bring it to the temple for the high priest. And that animal represented your contrition, it represented your confession, it represented your desire for forgiveness. And so the priest would then offer that animal as a sacrifice for your sin. And then that sacrifice would metaphorically kind of roll the sins forward for another year. And then you would be reminded of the fact that I, my forgiveness is not permanent. I'm still a sinner. I haven't yet been fully forgiven. I have to have another sacrifice. And so when that year ended, you would bring another sacrifice. Here we go again, year after year after year after year. Now, if you died in the midst of that sacrificial system, as millions of people did, you would go to heaven because you would die, as the Bible says in Hebrews 11, in faith believing that the Messiah one day would come to be the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And the proof of that is Romans chapter four, when Abraham died. Paul said, what did Abraham discover? What was it that he found? What was it that made Abraham go to heaven? What, what did he do? Did he keep the law? No, Abraham wasn't a perfect man. Uh, did he live up to all the elements of the covenant? No, he wasn't able to do that either. The Bible says Abraham believed God. 
Abraham believed God. Abraham had a faith in God, and that faith was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, what did that look like? Abraham believed his faith was in the fact that those sacrifices represented a Messiah one day who would come. So one day Abraham died. He died in faith, believing that Jesus one day would come. Now, everyone else on the other side of the cross dies in faith, looking back, believing one day Jesus did come. But it was always about faith. It was never about the keeping of the law. It was never about the living up to the tenets of the, of the covenants. It was never about that in order to merit salvation. All of those things were types, shadows, images foretelling the coming of Jesus. And so when he talks about here in chapter 10 of Hebrews that Jesus brings a better sacrifice, it had to bless the hearts of those people who were bringing those sacrifices in year after year for the forgiveness of their sins to know there's a better sacrifice than I can bring. There's a better sacrifice for me that's available for the forgiveness of my sins. And that sacrifice is Jesus. So with that backdrop, look at Hebrews chapter 10, just a few verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. For the law, having a shadow. Remember I said it was shadows and types and symbols. The law has a shadow of good things to come. Now the law was, was foretelling of the coming of Jesus. The law represented a standard of perfection one which no one could live up to. It represented God before the people. This is what God looks like. He's perfect in every way. God is holy in every way. So the law foreshadowed good things to come. Now a shadow is cast when the sun shines on an object. And the shadow of the Old Testament was shining on the law. The shadow of the Old Testament was cast when the sun was shining on the sacrificial system, and the shadow of the Old Testament was casting those, uh, or, or rather the sun was casting shadows forward in the Old Testament. Now when you get to the New Testament, we look back, the shadows go the other direction because the sun is Jesus and he's already come. But in the Old Testament, those shadows were forward. They were foretelling or forthtelling, which is what prophecy does. And so the Bible says, they were not the very image of those things, uh, and, and the sacrifices can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Now he's saying that they were significant. I mean, you had to be in the sacrificial system. It's how you uh, demonstrated your faith and your belief in the coming of the Messiah, but those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices could not perfect you. It could not ultimately forgive you. It did not make those who approached perfect. Now, it doesn't mean when you read the word perfect, it doesn't conjure up what our, our minds think of when we read that English word perfect. We think of perfection as in being sinlessly perfect. That's not what's, what it means. The word literally means complete. It means whole. It means you never, through the sacrificial system, you never felt fully accepted by God. You never felt fully forgiven by God because the sacrifice demanded you bring another one next year and you had to go through this again. So you're good for now, but you're not good for good because you got to do this all over again. So he's saying this sacrificial system, though it had its place, it was a shadow, an image of great things that were coming. It did not make those who approached it perfect. Verse two, for if it did, would they uh, not have ceased to be offered? He's just asking a rhetorical question. If they could have done it, would they have not done it? <laughs> if they were the end all, it would have been a one and done. Bring your goat, bring your ox, offer it, you're done, you're good to go. But it didn't happen. They did not, the animal sacrifices did not satisfy the requirement of God uh, to uh, 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 atone for sin. 
He said, for uh, would not they have not ceased to be offered? Verse two, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more conscience of sin. I mean, once God has forgiven you, I mean, it would have wiped it out. You, you wouldn't be feeling bad about this, but that's not what happened in the Old Testament. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time you brought your sacrifice, you're, you're reminded of why you're bringing it. I'm bringing the sacrifice because I'm a sinner. I'm bringing a sacrifice because I'm not worthy. I'm bringing the sacrifice because I had another year. I, I, I thought, you know, I, I, it would be better, but it wasn't. I thought I would do better, but I didn't, you know. So you brought the sacrifice. But in those sacrifices, the reminder of sin each year, for it is not, here it is, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. The idea of taking away means blotting out. It means completely, permanently removing. He's saying the animal sacrifices, though they had their place in Old Testament uh, history, and though they had their place in that system, they did not ultimately satisfy the requirement of God to take away sin. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, look, see what's there for. <laughs> when he, speaking of Jesus, came in the world, here's what Jesus said. Sacrifice and offering, God, you did not desire. Now he's quoting a, a prophecy from uh, Psalm 40. If you want to read that, Psalm 40, verses six through eight, this is the prophecy. Sacrifice and offering, you did not desire, but here it is, a body. Uh, Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm, he's quoting the prophecy from, Isaiah, uh, from uh, Psalm 40. He's saying, God did not require ultimately blood uh, from animals that would require the, uh, the God to be satisfied for the sacrifice of the people, but instead a body. Now we celebrate that uh, at Christmas time. We celebrate God becoming flesh when Jesus became flesh, a, a body. Uh, we call it the incarnation. Carnus is flesh. To be incarnate is to be in flesh. So he's saying here this body was what God required and this body was prepared and it was prepared for Jesus. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. Notice now, this book is written about Jesus. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is saying all of the sacrificial system would give way one day to an offering of his body on the cross. And Jesus said, that's the reason I came into this world. He said, I, you find me in the volume of this book. It is written, Jesus said, about me. Now, let me stop long enough to kind of say parenthetically to that. Never see Jesus as a victim on the cross. Some people talk about it as though uh, he was, you know, a victim and, and he, he tried to get out of it and there's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And they say, well, he was trying to get out of it. He, he just couldn't, they caught him and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't escape from it. Well, remember, when the Bible speaks of Jesus coming as a sacrifice to, to end all sacrifices, it says in the book of Revelation that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So long before God created anything, Long before he stepped from nowhere to stand on nothing and speak everything into existence, they had this council meeting uh, somewhere in heaven, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and said, you know, if we put a tree in the garden, they're gonna choose to sin. And if they choose to sin, we're gonna have to find a way to redeem them. We're gonna need a pontifex. We're gonna need a priest. We're gonna need a bridge builder. We're gonna need an advocate. We're gonna need a mediator that can somehow go between sinful man and a holy God and make it possible for them to be reunited. And Jesus stepped forward and said, I'll go. I'll be the sacrifice. It is written in the volume of this book. My desire is to do the will of God and the will of God, ladies and gentlemen, hadn't changed. It's his will that every single solitary person on the earth know Jesus as their personal savior.
So he said, verse eight, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you didn't desire, nor you had pleasure in them. Verse nine, behold, I have come, Jesus said, to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, the sacrificial system, that he may establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, let me break this narrative apart for you a little bit and help you understand the incredible power and the wonderful benefit you have and I have when we receive the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin, when we accept him as our savior, when we go back to the cross, if you will, and say, your sacrifice for me is significant and I yield myself to you and I accept that sacrifice for my sin. I don't bring animal sacrifices. I accept your sacrifice and in his better sacrifice, he brought about three things. You ready for this? Number one, he brought about a better salvation. A better salvation. When you read the narrative again and you drop down even into verses 11, 12, and 13 that I didn't have time to really get into, but when you read those verses, the Bible says in verse 11 that the priest would stand and do these offerings repeatedly. And he went on to say, describing the work of the priest, that these sacrifices that they offered could never take away sins, meaning they could never permanently take away sin. It was rolling them forward. The old expression, kicking the can. It was, just, it was just moving them forward one more year, one more year, one more year. So he says the Old Testament priest had great significance, but the significance of the Old Testament priest was in the fact that he moved the sins forward, but he could never take them away. The sins could never be permanently blotted or permanently forgiven. It was a temporary uh, 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 a way of addressing sin. But notice what he says in verse 10, uh, 12 rather. But this man, speaking of Jesus, but this man, after he offered, note now, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now get the contrast. Verse 11, here's the priest standing. When you study the furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple, what you'll find is there was no chair for the priest because the work of the priest was never done. You had the brazen altar and the brazen laver and you had the table of showbread and the candle uh, sticks and you had the altar of incense and you had the holiest of holies, but there was no chair for the priest to sit because his work was never done. Hebrews 5 says the priest would offer a sacrifice for sins for himself because priests were sinful. And then once the priest would offer the sacrifice for their sins, they would then receive the sacrifice of the, uh, the offering for the sacrifice for the sins on behalf of the people. But he never sat down because his work was never done. And in the important and significant work that the priest did, it just moved sin forward. It never took it away. But then he says, but in contradistinction to those priests, this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, it's what you call one and done. <laughs> one sacrifice for sin forever, the Bible said he sat down. What he sat down, it's done, <laughs> done. Spurgeon used to say salvation isn't spelt D-O, salvation is spelt D-O-N-E. It's done. One of the last things Jesus said on the cross is it is done. He didn't say I'm done, he said it is done, meaning everything necessary for a lost world to be reconnected to a holy God is now complete in the sacrifice of Jesus, the pontifex, the bridge builder, the advocate, the mediator. 
So he provides a better salvation. He provides the salvation that secures us in what the Old Testament priests could not do. Jesus Christ did. And when you think about it, when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior, one of the things he does is he takes, takes you away from the penalty of sin. The Bible says concerning the penalty of sin in Romans 6, 23, here it is, uh, all, uh, uh, or rather, the wages of sin is death. What's the penalty of sin? Death. The Old Testament said the soul that sins dies. So the, the, the payment, the wages, the salary for sin is death. Physical death, yes, but spiritual death more significantly. Spiritual death is eternal banishment from the presence of God. And the penalty that hangs over everyone's head, every person born into this world with that sin nature. We have this, this penalty hanging over our head, this condemnation, if you will, from a holy God hanging over us. But listen, when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior, when you accept his sacrifice on the cross, he satisfies the penalty of sin. He did it at the cross. Jesus being infinite, suffered in a finite period of time, what you and I being finite would have to then suffer in an infinite period of time. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And in it, when you receive his payment for our sin, he takes care of the penalty. <laughs> Not only the penalty of sin, but when you read Romans six fourteen, he takes care of the power of sin. He says, sin does not have to have dominion over you or me, meaning it doesn't have to dominate us. You understand, unless you have within you that which is above you, you will succumb to what is around you and eventually fall into what is beneath you. You need to have a power within you greater than the pressure around you. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior, the Holy Spirit enters your life and when he comes into your life, he gives you a power that's greater than any pressure. You have the power that your sins and your lusts and your desires and the downward pull that's constantly on all of us doesn't dominate. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do hard things. I can do easy things. I can do difficult things. I can do challenging things. There's no thing I cannot do if the power of God resides within me. So man, when you receive him as savior, he brings about a better salvation removing the penalty of sin, removing the power of sin. And then the third thing is one day he'll remove you from the presence of sin. One of these days will be in heaven. The Bible talks about it in Revelation 21, 27. It says no unclean thing will enter into the presence of God. So one of these days we're going to the place, we're going to a place called heaven where the presence of evil will never come there. No sickness, no more sorrow, no more sin. What a place called heaven. What a wonderful thought. So we have a better salvation. Secondly and hurriedly, in this sacrifice is not only a better salvation, but it is a better sanctification. You see sanctified mentioned in verses 10. You see it again in verse 14. Verse 10 says, we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. Verse 14, he says, we are being sanctified. So we have been and we are being. What does it mean to be sanctified? Now, I know sometimes people, when they look at a word like this, they think Christianese. I, I don't know what that means. And sadly, sometimes in my profession, people have erroneously interpreted that word and they make people believe the word sanctified means to be made sinlessly perfect. Meaning that you could reach a state in your walk with God where you no longer sin. 
That's not what the word means. In fact, if you want to understand what a word in the Bible means, you apply a biblical tool called the law of first mention. You look and see where a word was first mentioned in the Bible. You look and see how that word was defined and in what context was it used. And it will be used the same way throughout the scriptures. Well, the first time you see the word sanctified is in Genesis chapter two, verse four. Long before sin, sin's not entering the picture till Genesis three. So sanctified is introduced before sin. And the word sanctified is used in this way. And the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified. Now today has nothing to do with sin. So what does that day mean? It means he set the day apart. It means he made the day unique. It means he made that day different from any other days of the week. So when you are sanctified, what he's saying is once you become one of his kids, you're unique. You're a new creation. You have a new power within you that's greater than the pressure around you. He's made you where you have the power to swim upstream. You have the power to overcome other th things that pull some people down. You have the power to get through things that other people could be torn apart if they tried to go through those same things. He said you have a, a, an ability to live your life with distinction and with uniqueness that you could not live the life before you knew Jesus. Sanctified. Uh, there's three ways whereby we're sanctified. He said we have been and we are being. Uh, one way is what I call positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, if anyone be in Christ, positionally in Christ, they're a new creation. You're in Christ. You're positionally sanctified. You're set apart. You're unique. You know why? You belong to him. You're one of his kids. You are positionally in Christ, so you are set apart, sanctified, different than all the other people because you belong to him. You got a new dad. You belong, your, your citizenship is in a new country. I mean, all of that changes because you have a connection with your creator, positional sanctification. And then there is secondly what is called, what I call practical sanctification. The Old Testament is in Leviticus 20, verse seven. New Testament is 1 Peter 2, verses nine through 12. And that's where we get this now, sanctify ourselves. Positionally, I'm in Christ, which sanctifies me. But every day that I wake up, I have to practically make decisions that sanctify myself, meaning it sets me apart, that makes me unique. Meaning that when everyone is going with the flow and I know the flow is not moving in the right direction, I have a power to go against the flow that makes you unique. When everyone else is doing something that you know is wrong and you turn your back on that which you know to be wrong and you embrace what is right, even if you stand alone, that makes you unique. Every day you and I live, the bigger decisions we face is not necessarily those between good and evil. Those are no brainers. The bigger decisions you and I face is the decisions that, that ask this question, what is good for me as opposed to what is best for me? For some, it might be who is good for me as opposed to who is best for me. So you call it discernment. And when you have that discernment, you are practically sanctifying yourself by the decisions you make. Does that make sense? So you have positional sanctification, practical sanctification, and one day permanent sanctification, we're back to heaven. That's when one day we're in the presence of God. So I'm saying, guys, when you know Jesus as your savior, you're unique, you're distinct. God has designed you with a purpose in mind. There's no one that can do exactly what he's designed you to do. And you live every day with that thought. So we have a better salvation. 
we have a better sanctification. Here's the third one, we'll go home. We have a better security. We have a better security. Think about this. All those Old Testament saints, all the way up to the coming of Jesus, were never completely secure in their salvation because their salvation was not completed. It was to be done over and over and over again. They, they, they died in faith believing, but it, they weren't secure. Not till Jesus came. Not till Jesus went to the cross. Not till Jesus died and was raised again. What did Paul say concerning the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everyone who has died in faith have perished. Meaning everyone that died all the way back to Adam. If Jesus did not come, if he did not die, if he did not rise again, everyone to the time of Adam would have, be, would, would have died and would have perished, meaning they would be eternally separated from God without hope. But man, we have a better security because the Bible says in verse 10 again, Jesus Christ came and died once for all. One sacrifice for sin. One offering he perfected, how long? Forever, those who are being sanctified. I love it, once for all, one sacrifice, one offering, perfected forever, those who are being saved. When you know Jesus Christ as your savior, you have something that those Old Testament saints didn't have. Let me say, you have someone those Old Testament saints did not have. You have, listen, the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the dynamic of Acts chapter two. When Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit descended. Literally what happened was Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church went out and lost people came in. <laughs> I mean, Jesus said, it's, it's good for you that I go. If I don't go, he said, the Holy Spirit can't come. So he said, if I go, the Holy Spirit will come, and the works that I've done, you'll do even greater works, not greater in might, but greater in measure because his spirit is going to indwell his church and there's going to be multiplied millions of people out there doing the thing that he did when he was limited in one body. And so I'm saying to your heart this morning, when you invite Jesus Christ in your heart, read what he said in Ephesians chapter one. He said in verse 13, once you have received him, you are filled and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That means you receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, there's many fillings of the Spirit, but there's one receiving of the Spirit. That's what he meant in, in uh, Ephesians 5.18 when he said, uh, be not drunk with wine when it is excess, but be you being filled. Uh, um, how do you get drunk? <laughs> if, if I've heard some folks talk, uh, you get drunk by drinking. Is that fair? And if you keep drinking, you get drunk? Is that, am I, you don't want to agree with me, do you? <laughs> Give me a thumbs up if you're watching online. How do you feel with the Spirit? You're yielding. You're yielding. As you yield, he feel, even God can't fill what's already full. So once I have the Spirit of God, I can have, listen, I can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can have the Holy Spirit in my life without the filling. I can run around without the fullness of the Holy Spirit because he only fills what I yield, so I yield to him every day and I experience his fullness. You see the difference? In fact, some people believe, well, you, you get God on the installment plan. You get Jesus when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit later on, you get a connection with God later on. But the Bible says in Romans, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he's none of his. So I say you don't get him on the installment plan. <laughs> 
When you receive Jesus, you get him. The problem is he just don't get all of you. You receive him, he just don't get all of you. He bought the house, you're bought with the price. You just don't let him in all the rooms. That's the filling. When you open some doors to some areas you've been holding on to, the Holy Spirit moves in and all of a sudden there's a new feeling, there's a new energy, there's a new excitement because you just let him have access to parts of you that you've been holding on to. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. What's my point? My point is when you receive Jesus, all of a sudden, man, you receive his Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1.13 says, not just receiving, but listen, sealed with him. That's where I get this idea of being eternally saved. Now, I have friends that don't believe that. They don't think you're eternally saved. And I, I have some fun with them because I know they're wrong about other things. But the point is, I believe you are eternally saved. Listen, if you could do something to be lost, isn't it prideful to think you could do something to keep saved? I mean, isn't it kind of prideful to think that I could do something to keep myself saved? The Bible says we're kept, how? Not by our power, but by the power of his word. Now track with me, because this is important. I'll, I'll maybe help a brother this morning. <laughs> when you receive Jesus, he seals you in the deal according to Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit is the seal that seals you in the deal. And what does he say? You are sealed, get this, unto the day of redemption. What is that? You're as good until the day you're in heaven. My grandmother and granddad had a little farm in Oklahoma when I was a kid. They had a storm cellar. Everybody in Oklahoma's got a storm cellar. And, uh, but they had a storm cellar and she would keep things that she would can down in that storm cellar. And so she'd send me out there when I was a kid. She'd Billy Lord, go down and pick out some. And then she would tell me, when you get that, it, it, they call it cannon, even though it was in a jar, which was confusing for a kid. But when I'd go down there to get it, she'd say, check the seal and make sure, sure the seal isn't popped up. Because if, that, if the top of that lid is popped up, oh, it's not Mr. Haney. If the lid is popped up, he said, then that means the seal is broken. So he said, that means the contents of that are no good. And so you check the seal. And so when I was a little kid, I learned about that. I'd go down there and I'd look at those mason jars and man, if that seal was pressed in, that means it was good. If it's popped up, that means it was bad. It meant that the contents of that jar were as good as long as the seal is good. Now fast forward, you remember the Tylenol scare in Chicago a few years ago? Somebody tampered with some Tylenol and now you gotta have a SEAL Team 6 to get into Tylenol. But the point is, they, they've locked that thing down because somebody tampered with it and there's not a person watching or a person in this room that would buy any item that you were gonna give to your family or that you would take if the seal was broken. Because if the seal is broken, the contents are no good. What's the point? The point is in Ephesians 1.13, the Holy Spirit is the seal. And before I could lose my salvation, he would have to break covenant with me. And when the Bible says Jesus, listen, was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifice, he died once for all to permanently sanctify those who were believing, Jesus would, according to that, have to come back and die again to take care of the sins of my future. All sins were covered at the cross. Have you thought about it? When Jesus died, every sin was in the future. Our sins were. How is it that suddenly when I have a relationship with him, how is it that the cross is good up until that point, but going further, maybe not so much? Let me tell you what I believe, because I'm sure you're all curious about that. I believe even my friends who disagree with me on eternal security, I believe they're eternally secure. 
The difference between them and me is I'm gonna have a lot better time enjoying my salvation than they are. Because they're gonna go through life going, I don't know, maybe I blew it. Maybe I thought wrong, maybe I didn't wrong. Should I get saved again? Oh my God, I'm gonna go saved again. Maybe God get me out, did he get me out? I, I thought something, I shouldn't have thought that. Shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. And I'm going through life going, you know my heavenly father's got it. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me. It doesn't affect my relationship with him, it affects my fellowship with him. So I wanna have good fellowship with him, so I wanna keep short accounts with my heavenly father. And I wanna know nothing I can do will drive me from his presence. Because I can fall on that rock, but I can't fall off of it. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, and again, and again, and again. And then Jesus gave this illustration. He said, Nick, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Can you be unborn physically? No. Jesus' illustration. He said, that which is born of spirit is spirit. If you can't be unborn physically, according to Jesus' illustration, you can't be unborn spiritually. You say, oh, well, if you believe that, you just got a license to sin. You can just do anything you want to do. No, listen. If you know Jesus, it's not a matter of I can sin all I want to. If you know Jesus, you sin about all you want to because he changes you want to. I know a lot of people that are professing a faith in Christ that they don't possess. I know a lot of people that claim to know Jesus don't know him. <laughs> but I'm telling you, once you're in a relationship with him and you've accepted his sacrifice for your sin, you've experienced a better salvation, you've experienced a better uh, sanctification, and you're experiencing better security. Can you imagine getting to heaven one day and one of his kids are missing? I believe Jesus would stop all the rejoicing and the singing and the shouting in heaven. I think he would call all heaven to silence. And he would span the vast multitudes of the people that are there. When heaven is perfectly silent, Jesus would say, one of my kids are missing. And listen, God would bankrupt heaven and put the angels on half ration before he'd leave one of you behind. He loves you that much. When the Titanic set sail many years ago, everybody knows the story of the Titanic. And when they set sail, they say there were three classes of people on board. That's how they looked at them. They said there were upper class and middle class and lower class, and that's how they described people back then. But you know what happened when the Titanic hit the iceberg? There were two classes of people on board, the saved and the lost. You know how Jesus looks at a lost world? He sees people as saved or lost. How we as a church ought to look at people saved or lost. This one knows Jesus, this one needs to. This one is walking with Jesus, this one has an opportunity to. And we're his body on this earth. And we who have been to the cross and have accepted the sacrifice and experienced a better salvation, sanctification and security, it is treason against our King if we don't tell people about Jesus. It's on the driving edge of everything we do as a church. It's the so what. We do this so that, we do this so that, we do this, we, everything we do has a purpose and that's to get people to Jesus. Get them to Jesus. We're the body of Christ and the Son of Man came, the Bible says, to seek and save those who are lost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And this morning, as we've just explored the power of your sacrifice, as we considered how it brings us a better salvation, a better sanctification, a better security, 
I pray, Father, that we'll just stop long enough to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the price you paid. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we can experience. Thank you that we'll never stand before you in judgment for the sins that we've committed. All that happened at the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice. And Lord, if there's one watching or one in the room who never have humbled their hearts and invited you into their life, may this be the moment where they turn away from the religion and they embrace the relationship with Jesus. May they simply pray this prayer and say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I trust everything I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.